to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. Throughout this month of December, we are talking about one of the great themes of the Bible, one of the big ideas of the Bible. And December's idea is liberation, which means what? Freedom! Liberation means freedom, and God brings and gives to us freedom. God makes us free. So I want to read a story about freedom this morning from Luke's Gospel. Now, just a little bit of background before I read it. By the fourth chapter of Luke, Jesus has not done a thing yet. We're already like four chapters in, and he hasn't even done anything in public. But what has happened already is that Jesus was baptized by John in the wilderness... And then Jesus was sent out into the wilderness to be tempted to use his power for himself. But he says no. He says, I'm not going to use my power for myself. I trust in God. And so then Jesus goes back to his hometown and he, he starts telling the world about what he has come to do, what God sent him to the earth to live and be with us to do And here is what Jesus says. When he came to Nazareth, where Jesus had been raised up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, right? We've heard about Isaiah. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to Jesus. Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where Isaiah said this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to bring good news to those who are poor. God has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to those who are blind, to let those who are oppressed go free. I have come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant in the synagogue, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And then he said to them, Today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Jesus shows up at the synagogue in Nazareth and he reads this text from the prophet Isaiah. Of all the things that Jesus might have said on that day when he was declaring his intentions, Of all the things he might have read from the prophet Isaiah, some of which we've heard over the last couple of weeks, he could have talked about comfort, 
He could have talked about redemptive suffering. Why read this passage? Today I want to explore what Jesus says about liberation when he speaks at the synagogue in Nazareth and ask what it meant then and also ask what it means today for those of us who follow after Jesus. The first thing we should say is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news if you are materially poor. God sends Jesus to be with us to ameliorate material poverty. All of us here today, every single one of us, has a slightly different relationship to poverty. Some of you who are here today, I know, have experienced poverty. You have lived inside of it. You have been hungry or you've been without a place to live. You've not known how to pay the next set of bills. Others of us who are here today know poverty because our lives have touched the lives of people who are poor. They are our family members. They are our neighbors. They are some of our friends here at church. But every one of us, no matter our relationship, understands, I think, that poverty is a a brutal thing. People who are poor, the statistics suggest, die 10 to 15 years before people who are not. People who are poor experience stress on a search in early high levels. This kind of stress we now know because of our research into the brain. We know this kind of stress alters the way that the brain functions for one's entire life. People who are poor experience worse nutrition. They have more difficulty giving birth to healthy babies, more emotional illnesses. Children who grow up poor receive less and worse educations. They are less likely to have clean water or heat and air conditioning. Poverty is a ruthless kind of beast. Now, we in the United States have kind of an antiquated way of defining official poverty. We basically take the cost of a subsistence diet, and we multiply it times three. According to that definition, which is roughly $25,000 a year for a family of four people, according to that definition, one out of every six of our neighbors are poor. But one in six, that number, one in six, those are rarely the same person, right? Less than 6% of us are poor for an extended period of time. What happens more often is that you and I come and go into and out of poverty in such a way that researchers suggest that 40% of all of our neighbors, 40% of us, will be poor at some point in our adult lives. 131 million Americans, give or take. Now, when Jesus showed up at the synagogue on that day in Nazareth during the Roman Empire, 90% of the population lived at or below a subsistence level. It makes sense given that kind of shocking reality that that interrupting that kind of oppression would be part of Jesus' ministry. But the question is, does it still hold true today for the church to focus our energy on economic liberation? It's worth remembering, I think, that that while poverty has been around for a long time, poverty is not natural. Poverty is, in fact, a man-made reality, both in Jesus' time and still today. Poverty happens when some people in a society own more than they need. Other people in the same society end up with less than they need. 
Poverty is a breakdown, a breakdown in our bonds of caring and mutual support for each other. We've been taught something else, right? We've been taught that poverty is a function of individual failures. And for sure, our individual decisions contribute to poverty. But when 40% of all of the folks in the society experience poverty in our lifetime, this is not just about individual failure. This is the way that we've designed our life together. It's nothing less than a communal failure to extend care and dignity to every one of our neighbors. So I want to ask today, what does it look like for a Christian to be good news to those who happen to be poor? How is it that, that you and I can hear this message from Jesus wherever we are, and start to weave the social and economic and political bonds that gather in those who are experiencing material poverty. One way, one way that you can do this, that all of us can do this, is by taking personal responsibility for helping out our neighbors who are poor. Often we think of this kind of help as charity, right? Uh, That we are charitably giving of ourselves to support others. But I want to remind you today that there's a, there's a strand of our Christian tradition that gets a bit more blunt about this kind of giving. I want you to listen this morning to the 4th century bishop, Basil the Great. I have no idea if he was great or not, but he, he did say this. He said, when someone steals another person's clothes, we call them a thief. He says, should we not give the same name? to one who could clothe the naked and does not. The bread in your cupboard, he said, belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. According to Basil, If you have something and a person who is poor does not have that thing, it effectively belongs to them already. People ask me all the time, well, how much should I give, right? How how much does God ask of me to give away? And I say, eh, 10%, maybe, maybe more. But whatever we give, however much we give, right, the understanding is that this money is not truly ours. It belongs by right to those around us who experience poverty. And if this kind of giving hurts, and 10% for sure hurts at least just a little bit, it should. It allows those of us who have more than we need to suffer with and for those who are already suffering under material deprivation. Now, church, our church does a darn good job, right? I think. I'm not trying to toot our own horn, but, but we try to be good news to those around us and within our community who are poor. We partner with organizations across the city and the world, from Decatur to Haiti, to support people experiencing poverty. You all give tens of thousands of dollars collectively, hundreds of thousands of dollars as individuals. You give your time and your energy. Some of you have given the substance of your lives. 
Every week, uh, your staff in the office, Nancy and the Yabo and Beth and I, give meals and motel rooms and Walmart cards for clothes and toiletries. And thanks to your gifts, right, we're able to do that each and every day of the week. But even with these commitments that we have made as a congregation, which are substantial, our church culture right now, let's be honest, is solidly upper middle class. Not all of us, but many of us here on Sunday are not poor. So just as Jesus made an intentional decision to live and preach and teach and and heal among those who experience poverty, so can each of you make decisions that close the distance between your life and the lives of people who experience poverty. Your invitation is to let your lives be conjoined. Let your lives connect. Let there be friendship and sharing and mutual support and laughter and meals. The boldest among us will make big decisions. It'll change the way we work in the world. It'll change the places where we choose to live. But the friendships that we make with people experiencing poverty, deepen our understanding of the complexity and the difficulty of poverty, and they ground us in the practice of good news instead of paternalistic charity. The poor, I want to remind you, are not some noble category of people. The poor are not a cause. They are God's beloveds, just like us, made in the image of God, beautiful and flawed, just like you. So practice these things, right? Practice these things. Practice generous giving. Practice relational solidarity. These things are essential if we are to live as good news for people who happen to be poor. These actions will make a difference in the lives of the individual people whom you encounter, but the truth is they will also not end poverty. I think Jesus wants us to end poverty in his name. Beth and I have a good friend with whom we went to seminary, whose name is Liz Theo Harris. And Liz has spent much of her life walking alongside people who are experiencing poverty, thinking and talking with them about how poverty might come to an end. Together with a man named William Barber, Liz has resurrected the last great work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, a national poor people's campaign. Liz is inviting Americans and especially inviting Christians to make the end of poverty a fundamental commitment of our lives. This requires us to engage politics, doesn't it? This requires that we engage our national and state and local politicians. People who are poor have the least political power in our culture. What that means is that our economic policies and our social policies get made by and they favor people who are rich. But politics is a place where our dreams for our communities can be enacted. And ending poverty, if that is in fact our dream, requires our political engagement. And we've come a long way since the time of Jesus. We are closer to ending poverty now than perhaps we have ever been. We've experimented with a lot of things, and in fact, we really do know what works. Jobs, right? Not just any job, but good jobs that provide living wages and financial security. Ways that we can lower the costs 
of essential goods like housing and transportation, medical care and child care. These are essentials that the market cannot and will not provide to people who are poor. How do we bring those costs down? Most of you are familiar and some of you are participating in our ongoing national conversation about medical care right now. People are talking about universal health care coverage. And there's a lot of fear about the cost of that kind of coverage. But we as Christians are also asked to hold that cost against the cost of the unnecessary suffering of our neighbors who have no health coverage. We have the money. We have the means to end material poverty. The question is, do we want to? Do you have the will? Our friend Liz believes that Jesus, when he showed up at the synagogue in Nazareth, was announcing his intention to end the unnecessary suffering that we inflict upon each other through man-made poverty. I believe her. Not every Christian does, right? Not every Christian agrees with Liz. They will point to passages like, the poor will always be with you, something that Jesus does, in fact, say. And they will, they will say that Jesus had no intention of ending poverty, that his message was about the salvation of our souls, that ours is a spiritual liberation from sin, not a material liberation. Dr. Theo Harris, she also has a Ph.D. in New Testament and is spent more time studying Jesus' teachings about poverty than anyone else. She is quick to point out that when Jesus says the poor will always be with you, he's quoting Deuteronomy 15. And if you go back today and read that passage, you'll find it's the text in the Hebrew Scriptures that most clearly defines our obligation to care for the material needs of our neighbors who are poor. Deuteronomy 15 even commands debt forgiveness. What Jesus here in Isaiah, quoting Isaiah, refers to as the year of the Lord's favor. The poor will always be with us. Because when we are living in the way that is faithful to God, we will always be with our poor neighbors. We will be closing the distance. We'll be walking alongside one another, easing their suffering and reweaving the social fabric in such a way that the dehumanizing reality of poverty becomes an utter impossibility. I know. It sounds like I'm saying that Jesus came with some radical economic agenda. Well, Jesus did focus on economic realities. Because economics are not so much about money as they are about people and about relationships. Economics is about the stuff of this world. It's about how we relate to the things, the material reality, and how we relate to the people in our lives. The word economics comes from the Greek word oikos, which means household. In God's economics, we are all members of the same household, the household of God. We are responsible for each other, for one another's material and spiritual well-being. God made the world, remember, made the whole house 
and made sure there's enough here for everyone. God gave the world to us to tend it and to keep it, that the earth might yield its goodness so that we might share it and enjoy it together. No one with too much, no one with too little. One of the great theological propositions that we hold dear this time of year in the Christmas season is the proposition of incarnation. In Jesus Christ, born to Mary, our material and spiritual realities are reunited. The spirit and the flesh are one. So if material poverty defaces the world that God made, if poverty defaces the image of God that is inscribed on every human face, if poverty harms the relationships that we have with one another, Jesus comes to make it right. He stands up. He opens the scroll and he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And liberation from material poverty is, in fact, good news for those who are poor, but make no mistake. By restoring our relationships to God's creation and restoring our relationships to every one of our neighbors, the end of poverty is no less a liberation for the wealthy, too. Today, Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, may it be so in your lives, in our life, today and forever. Let the people say, Amen.